Truth Espresso, episode 159. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, Truth Espresso friends, family, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, coming at you once again for another episode of Truth Espresso. And if you haven't listened to the last episode, I started a two-part, we'll see, possibly three-part series. It depends on how this goes. But a series answering the question, is Jesus like Dr. Octopus? And especially if you haven't listened to the episode from last week, you likely would be scratching your head wondering why someone would ask such a weird question because no one on earth has ever thought to ask that. <laughs> like, you're probably not staying awake at night wondering just how much Jesus is like Dr. Octopus, the villain from Spider-Man comics and movies. And so, if you're just tuning in and you don't know why I'm answering this very strange question, take a listen to the last episode of Truth Espresso because this is also part of a longer series that I'm just continuing and concluding that I had done episodes last year, months ago, answering the question, is Jesus like, insert your favorite superhero here. So, we did like Superman and Batman and some other heroes. And I'll go over a list of what we've gone over as we're concluding that series. And I talked about in the last episode why I picked Dr. Octopus because I couldn't find a superhero that illustrates the question from church history that we're trying to answer. And so the first episode in the series, the first question was, is Jesus like Superman? And that was answering the challenge of docetism in history, the Gnostic idea that Jesus only appeared to be human. He was only a divinish being and appeared to be human, but was not really human. And so Superman kind of represents that. And then we move to the question, is Jesus like Batman? And recognizing that Batman is a really cool uber human being, but he's still only a human being. And yeah, you can make Jesus the greatest, most perfect human being that ever walked the planet. But if he's only human, then he can't be our savior. And this represented uh, Abianism, a first and second century primarily idea that Jesus was only human. He was kind of like Moses. And later, Socinianism in the Radical Reformation, as you had the Reformers against the Catholic Church, but then around the same time, you had people going farther and saying, yeah, everything the Catholic Church teaches is wrong. Even the idea of Jesus as fully God and fully man, he was just a man. And that's Socinianism. Then we asked the question, is Jesus like Ant-Man? 
<laughs> and the illustration with Ant-Man being able to change three different sizes, although he's only one, and he can only be in the one size at any one time, this illustrated modalism or Sabellianism, the idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are only three modes of one person of God. We also answered the question, is Jesus like the Green Lantern? And that illustrated the idea of adoptionism. And so the Green Lantern was given this special ring that gave him superpowers, but otherwise he was still human. He was only imbued with superpowers by a blessing from the divine. And so that was adoptionism. And then we asked the question, is Jesus like Thor? And so Thor being like a semi-divine creature who had a beginning, who came from the Most High, and that was illustrated by Thor being like the greatest son of the greatest god being Odin. And so comparing Odin to God the Father, and then Jesus being, you know, a a creature who's really mighty, he's like an angel, he's semi-divine, that's Arianism. And that was answered at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And then after that, we answered the question, is Jesus like Iron Man? And so kind of if you think of a reverse of Iron Man or an inside out Iron Man, where, you know, Iron Man is a human driving around a suit with kind of a human-like suit with superpowers. Uh, I'm comparing Apollinarianism with Iron Man, but kind of an inside out. Iron Man, where you have a divine person driving around a human kind of machine, and that's Apollinarianism, the idea that Jesus was fully divine, but he animated and filled a human body and lacked a human will and a human spirit or something like that. There's something human that he lacked that was replaced by the spirit of the Son. And then after that, answer the question, is Jesus like the Incredible Hulk? And that was to answer Nestorianism, the idea that Jesus was both fully divine and fully human, but they were kind of like two persons sharing one body. And so you have Dr. Banner and you have the Hulk, both different persons sharing the same body. You know, you could also think of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or even Gollum from The Lord of the Rings when he talked to himself, you had the good golem and the evil golem talking to each other in the same body, kind of schizophrenia there. And then finally, we answer the question, is Jesus like Captain America? And that was answering what's called Eutychianism or monophysitism, one nature. And that's kind of the extreme answer against Nestorianism. So while it acknowledges that Jesus is both divine and human, it's ultimately combined and mixed together into one nature that compromises the integrity of both natures. So, Arianism was addressed at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Apollinarianism, the Iron Man idea, was answered along with Arianism again in the Council of Constantinople, number one, in 381. 
And then Nestorianism, the Incredible Hulk idea, was answered at the Council of Ephesus in 431. And then 20 years later, Eutychianism or Monophysitism or the Captain America or even Spider-Man or X-Men, that type of idea was answered at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And so, orthodoxy came to light against all of the errors, indicating that Jesus was one person, not two, one person, but with two complete natures that are united in the one person, but are not in any way mixed together. They're not divided such that they become two personalities. So they're not compromised in any way. And that was ultimately necessary for Jesus to be our Savior, our substitute, our mediator between God and man. And that requires one mediator, one person, but someone who can lay his hands upon both God and man, like Job says in Job chapter 9. And so it has to be one person with two full natures. But now we're moving 200 years later, a little over 200 years later after Chalcedon, and we have another controversy. And essentially this controversy was a compromise between the Monophysites or the Eutychians, those who held to the Captain America or Spider-Man idea of the two mixed natures into one nature, and the Orthodox position. And uh, the last episode, we talked about detailing Dr. Octopus as an illustration of this, how he had two full natures. He was fully human, and then his tentacle harness um, had its own will, (laughs) you know, especially in the Spider-Man movie 2004, Spider-Man 2 there. They had an inhibitor chip so that he could control it, but then that inhibitor chip got destroyed. The harness got fused to Dr. Octavius's body so he became dr octopus and there is only one active will the will of the tentacles or essentially the divine will so you have one person two natures seemingly two complete natures but only the will of the divine nature was active the human will was compromised or non-existent or suppressed or dormant in some way And so, this is the idea from church history in the 7th century called monothelitism. And, you know, if that sounds like a big word, think monophysitism meant one nature, one phusis, one physic, (laughs) one nature. Now, monothelitism, the Greek word thelos, refers to will. So, it's the idea that Jesus had only one will. And so, monothelitism becomes the big controversy in the 7th century. Now, the strange, seemingly insignificant doctrine, at least by our standards today, plagued the world's most powerful empire for about half of a century in the 7th century here. And, you know, many Christians haven't looked at church history enough to understand that. And most Christians today have never heard of that. If you go up to your typical Christian in a Baptist church or evangelical church or whatever 
possibly even some Catholic or Orthodox churches, you know, just your typical person in a church and you ask them, hey, can you tell me anything about monothelitism? They might not know what you're talking about, but there was a time in church history where this was the thing to talk about and there was a lot of politics surrounding it. So why did monothelitism become a thing? How did it come about in the 7th century? Well, unlike some of the other controversies beforehand, where it wasn't someone seemingly trying to be orthodox and argue against one heresy, and then they possibly could be well-meaning, or it's some kind of philosopher trying to reason out things, monothelitism pretty much to its core was a political position. So monothelitism, the reason for its existence essentially was to be a political compromise between the Chalcedonian Orthodox, you know, those who held to one person with two full natures as expressed by the Council of Chalcedon and the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Monophysites, those who ran afoul of the Chalcedonian Creed, the ones who believed that Jesus had one nature. So, remember, you have Nestorianism essentially on one side, Chalcedon, the Orthodox, kind of would be in the middle, and then you'd have the Monophysites or Eutychians, those who held to one nature, on the other side. But Monothelitism is kind of a compromised position in between the middle, Orthodoxy, and the uh, Monophysitism on the right. So, According to monothelitism, they would affirm that Jesus has two natures, divine and human, but only one will being the divine will. And now, as I explained Dr. Octopus earlier, where, you know, the inhibitor chip gets destroyed and then he's essentially controlled by the will of the uh, mechanical arms the divine nature, essentially, that's an illustration of monothelitism, one will, one person, two natures, but only one active will. And if you want to understand more how that works, listen to the previous episode where I talked about the will pertaining to the nature. Each nature has a will. The potential for will, the potential for willful actions kind of like a bank account, you know, and then you have the personal will or the will actuated kind of like a transaction statement. So you have the natural will, the will as a component of the nature that's a source of actions, and then you have the personal will that actually draws from that and puts it into action. So you have the Trinity, one nature, one God, three persons. So you have one source of will and three actuated wills, or one kind of thing, bank account, <laughs> and three separate statements of transactions, each belonging to the persons. And then when you have Jesus, the incarnation, you have the one person of the Son taking on a human nature. And so he's one person with two natures. So kind of like the flip side here, with Jesus, you have two different bank accounts, a divine bank account and a human bank account. And then you have one transaction statement that interpolates you know, actions, withdrawals, and so on. <laughs> come 
coming from the two bank accounts. So, yeah. And I hope that that illustrated the idea of the natural will and the personal or actualized will. And so, I also talked about scriptures, why I believe the scriptures teach that Jesus has two natural wills. He has a human will and a divine will, but it's actuated in the one person of the Son. So, one statement of actuated will coming from the two sources. So, you have divine actions and human actions. Jesus could do nothing except what's in harmony with the Father in reference to his divine nature, but then also as a human, coming from the human will, Jesus was tempted, he suffered, he endured pain, he had fear, he prayed and worshipped God his Father. And so that's the consideration for why Jesus is not like Dr. Octopus in that one will manifestation. So now let's get into the history of monothelitism, and it it is a very involved history compared to the other controversies. So it seems to me like, as I was researching this, there's more intricacy in the history of this, but a lot of people are not even aware that this controversy existed. So, remember the Council of Chalcedon in 451 declared that Jesus is one person with two fully distinct natures. And so, as a result, the monophysites, those who believed in one fused nature, one divino-humano nature rather than two, they were declared heretics and Ultimately, they had to find places to settle where they felt welcome. So, it was a common practice at this time. Those who were heretics, they weren't killed or something like that. You know, at least for a while, they were just excommunicated. Like, you're not allowed to worship in church here. You're not allowed to attend the churches in the area. And so, in order for them to do what they seem to be Christian practices, they would have to leave. They would have to find some places to settle outside the main areas of the empire and do their own thing. And so, the monophysites, as newly minted heretics, (laughs) as a result of Chalcedon, had to find places to settle where they felt welcome. And ultimately, they settled in places um, in Egypt, kind of to the south, Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Syria. So, areas to the south and to the east. And so, as you're thinking of Egypt and then places kind of uh, east of Egypt, you're probably thinking more in terms of Saudi Arabia and stuff. So, a lot of these monophysites were settling in Saudi Arabia. And that ultimately comes up in history when you're dealing with the history of Islam because the early Muslims encountered monophysites and they ultimately encountered the monothelites too. And you can actually see, if you read the Muslim Hadith literature, you could see references to some characters that I'll mention, like Emperor Heraclius. (laughs) So, if we shift 
a little less than 200 years from Chalcedon, so by the 620s AD, these two groups, the Chalcedonians and the Monophysites, had been at odds for nearly two centuries, and the effects on the unity of the Byzantine Empire were dire because you had quite a few Monophysites that had to move out and you had struggles between them. So if you're the emperor of an empire and some of your citizens <laughs> don't agree with you because, you know, if there's an orthodox position and so the emperor might have to hold to orthodoxy, but then, you know, you have the heretics in the empire, in the outskirts of the empire, who might not be very devoted to you because they would consider you a heretic and stuff like that. So you have disunity in the empire that is not not something that could be resolved very well. So, if we ask the question of taxes, well, who might resist paying taxes? Well, someone who believes that the leader of the empire is ultimately unholy. Because who wants to give money to someone with whom you disagree that might promote things that counter you, maybe punish you, or just further the teaching with which you disagree? So, you have people resisting paying taxes. You also have the issue of invasion from outside forces. So, as I mentioned, Islam was getting started around this time. And so, outside forces such as the rise of Islam from the south in Arabia, the southeast, and then you had the Persian Sassanids from the eastern areas north of Saudi Arabia, these threats of invasion threatened the stability and power of the Byzantine Empire. So, the Byzantine Empire, especially at this time, they had been at war with the Persian Sassanids since 602. And so, as you're coming to the 620s, both sides of this conflict had been kind of war-wearied. So, the year 610 was when Emperor Heraclius began reigning, and the Byzantine Empire was especially threatened during his reign, the Persian Sassanids pushed into the empire and reached the capital of Constantinople, and the only thing that ultimately prevented total defeat of the Byzantine Empire were the strong walls and the defenses around the capital city of Constantinople. So you can imagine that there would be concerns about having a strong empire at this point. So Emperor Heraclius ultimately managed to strengthen the military and reverse course. So the Byzantine armies ultimately managed to drive the Persians back out of the region of Asia Minor. And then in 627, Heraclius planned a very risky attack campaign on Nineveh in the cold winter. So Nineveh, of course you probably recognize Nineveh as the great city where Jonah was supposed to preach and then he got swallowed by a whale and ultimately God made him preach and Nineveh repented, but that lasted maybe, if I remember correctly, a hundred years and then Nineveh became pagan again. 
So Nineveh was a great fortress city of the Persian Empire, and Constantinople was the fortress city of the Byzantine Empire. And you had these two empires at war with each other, and Heraclius bravely uh, planned out a very risky attack and managed then to turn the tide. So as Constantinople was under siege in 626, yet the next year, a wearied and risky, you know, attack managed to turn the tide and end with Nineveh being the city that was under siege. And so at this time, the Persians were kind of freaking out and the Persian forces even disunified over their leadership. And then they caused a civil war in Persia. (laughs) So the Persian king was killed by his son. (laughs) There's some uh, family dispute right there. And so basically the son was really sick of his father trying to hold the four and wanted the Persians to surrender and his father the king must have had too much pride so his son was like this is going to be the death of all of us and then killed his father and then he came to uh, Emperor Heraclius and pleaded to end their war and of course Heraclius was only too glad because both of their kingdoms were pretty drained by this point. So 627 ended the war between the Byzantines and the Persian Sassanids since 602. And so you can imagine <laughs> after about 25 years of brutal conflict, you know, you want to think about why this should not happen again. How do we make sure our empire strong, not so we can take over places, but just so we're not threatened by outside forces. So Emperor Heraclius had to think, what is ultimately the cause of disunity and weakness in the empire? Well, essentially, the conflicts, what caused the disunity was a theological one. And so Emperor Heraclius, he had a bishop who was his friend, uh, Bishop Sergius I of Constantinople, to propose a compromise position that they felt could unite the empire and strengthen it. And they called this essentially monoenergism. And this is kind of like the precursor to monothelitism. So Jesus is one person with two natures, but there is one energy to his actions. (laughs) So, uh... Bishop Sergius of Constantinople actually received his high position as patriarch of the whole Byzantine capital of Constantinople in 610, and this was the same year that I mentioned before that Heraclius became the emperor. In fact, the two maintained a close relationship, and Sergius himself had crowned the emperor. So you could see that there was a close connection, a close friendship between the two, and so Sergius Sergius would recognize the interests of Heraclius. Sergius would understand. Sergius had been around seeing the problems of disunity and the war between the Byzantines and the Sassanids for this uh, long period of time. They both had like-mindedness there. So Sergius obviously observed the issue of a weakened empire, and he could empathize with his emperor on the need for strength through unity. 
and because the major obstacle to unity was the division between the Chalcedonian Orthodox and the Monophysites who were excommunicated and living in the outskirts, the solution to unity and strength for the empire had to be a religious meet-in-the-middle compromise. Hey, I'm Joel. Hey, this is Troy. Have you ever thought about how many sermons have never been listened to because they were never recorded because they came out before recordings? On our podcast, Revive Thoughts, we take the roughly 1,900 years of sermons and try to bring them back to life. We talk about the history, we talk about the setting, and every week we have a different speaker deliver these sermons for us to listen to once again. So this is your chance to listen to sermons by people like Calvin by people like Spurgeon, by people like Knox, and maybe some people you've never heard of, like Johann Tauler or Alexander White. Let us live and move and have our being and deal with men as if a dying, risen, interesting... See poor Lazarus in his full frightening misery and behind him Christ. The hand cannot alone deliver man. The body must... You can find Revive Thoughts on any podcast app or player that you have and at revivethoughts.com. We hope you learn something new and grow closer to God. And then in 622, Heraclius reached out to the bishops in Armenia to explain this doctrine and to get their support. So remember, I mentioned Armenia was one of the regions to which the excommunicated Monophysites moved. And so the emperor trying to appeal to them, you know, like, let's lay down our differences. What do you think of this? Would you be willing to accept two distinct natures if there is one energy from the person of Jesus? And think the ostracized monophysites thinking about this were probably only too happy to reduce their conflict with something that kind of favored their position. So this plan seemed to work at first, but of course there's going to be opposition. There's going to be Orthodox who are not very happy with compromising Orthodoxy for the sake of appealing to those that an ecumenical council had found was a heresy. So enter one Sophronius, who was patriarch of Jerusalem, and he opposed these efforts for promoting monoenergism as compromising theology for political purposes. So Sophronius recognized that this was politics. Now, of course, I have to empathize with Heraclius and Sergius for why they wanted to do this. But, of course, truth matters. There is no such thing as an official doctrine of the church that should be brought on for political purposes. You can't create something as a compromise. You know, Christianity can't function with sort of a Hegelian dialectic for political purposes. You don't start with one position see another position you have the thesis the antithesis and then you figure out a compromise which becomes the new thesis and that kind of dialectic there that doesn't work christianity is all about truth for truth's sake no matter what the opposition no matter what you have to do to stand up for it so even in the midst of political turmoil the orthodox bishop sophronius patriarch of jerusalem recognized the problem here in a opposed these efforts. 
And Sergius, remember Sergius, the bishop of Constantinople, then continuing this campaign for monoenergism, sent a letter to Honorius I, who was bishop of Rome, explaining the doctrine and the desire for unity. And Honorius also, like the Armenians, gave his consent to this. Now, I want to emphasize the fact that Honorius I here was Bishop of Rome, and he gave his consent to a political compromise doctrine that was at odds with orthodoxy because this is actually going to come up and be a very, very significant thing in church history. And if you think about the teaching of papal infallibility, well, here you have the Bishop of Rome here consenting to and in some way promoting what would ultimately be recognized as a heresy. And that becomes very significant. There are debates on the doctrine of papal infallibility that talk about Honorius's involvement in monoenergism slash monothelitism. So I'll talk about that later. Now, Sophronius of Jerusalem continued to stand his ground despite the fact that the Bishop of Rome had agreed that this was an acceptable position, and this ultimately led to what's called the Synod of Cyprus condemning monoenergism. Now, Sophronius also sent a letter to Honorius explaining why he believed that monoenergism was a thinly veiled and deceptive form of monophysitism. So Sophronius recognized that this compromise was really just kind of like monophysitism light. And Sophronius further published a collection of 600 writings from early church fathers to prove that they all believed that Jesus had two wills. Now, at least that's what's claimed in history. It's kind of hard for me to think that someone, you know, without the internet and that there's that much information in the early church fathers that would specifically address this issue. I mean, I can neither confirm nor deny the veracity of that, but that's what's claimed in history. So Sophronius did write something quoting from early church fathers to argue for true Chalcedonian orthodoxy and against monoenergy. Round two of this issue here, at first it seemed that Heraclius and Sergius, the tag team there of emperor and bishop of the capital city there, were succeeding, but then you had Sophronius and his followers and Orthodox who refused to accept monoenergism. You know, Heraclius and Sergius refused to give up on their campaign. So, like Constantine 300 years ago, they wanted a united empire. As I mentioned before, this was the most important thing, and they were not going to accept people <laughs> getting in the way of unity for petty reasons. So, in 638, Sergius changed the language of their doctrinal proposal to get rid of, of the language of energy, and they reformulated it to say that Christ had two natures, but one will. <laughs> so, that this time, monoenergism was reformulated to become monothelitism, like kind of more specific and even more refined uh, type of doctrinal statement. So, Emperor Heraclius published this doctrinal statement um, called the Exthesis, or a statement of faith. And he declared that 
monothelitism was the official doctrine of the empire. You know, he, he's like, okay, we've reached an acceptable compromise position between the Orthodox and the monophysites. There's no reason either side should object to this hint, hint. What's wrong with this compromise? We need unity, people. So he made this the official doctrine of the empire, and then Heraclius then posted the exthesis to the outer porch of the Hagia Sophia. So the Hagia Sophia was a kind of like a large building with a dome-shaped roof, and the Hagia Sophia ultimately got taken over by Muslims later on in history, but this was a very grand building at the time that the emperors posting it to that you know, as part of a gesture to say, this is the official teaching. <laughs> so now, ultimately, after this point, new faces uh, and changed positions came into play. So as you had successors to bishops and ex- successors to the emperor, you had kind of some people taking different sides of this issue, this conflict here. So in 638, Bishop Sophronius of Jerusalem died, and he was replaced by Pyrrhus, you know, sounds like a firebrand type of guy, (laughs) Pyrrhus, who, unlike Sophronius, was a monothelite and a friend of Heraclius and Sergius. So as Sophronius is ruling in his grave because his successor now allies with the monothelite position of Heraclius and Sergius, you also have in the same year Honorius I of Rome died and was replaced by Bishop Severinus. And Severinus was an opponent of monothelitism. He also openly condemned the ecstasis. So you had an Orthodox bishop of Jerusalem dying and re- being replaced by a monothelite, and then you had a somewhat de facto monothelite bishop of Rome who died and was replaced, succeeded by an Orthodox bishop. <laughs> And in 640, two years later, Bishop Severinus of Rome, his successor, you know, he, so only two years later, Severinus uh, died and his successor, John IV, also was Orthodox and condemned the ecstasis. So the push for monothelitism, uh, the Dr. Octopus idea, had created another major theological split in the empire. (laughs) So an idea that was pushed to unite the empire was creating its own lines of demarcation and its own conflict, much to the chagrin of Emperor Heraclius and Bishop Sergius of Constantinople. And so the next year in 641, Emperor Heraclius himself died. (laughs) And interestingly, on his deathbed, he lamented that he was duped by Bishop Sergius of Constantinople, that this whole issue was all his fault. (laughs) So Emperor, as he, on his deathbed, deathbed he's basically you know saying curse you sergius for proposing this and getting me involved in this conflict and uh, disuniting the empire further so we move on to emperor heraclius's successor who is called constance the <laughs> second 
and you know just kind of like uh, Constantine you know 300 years earlier you have these Constance and Constantine type people named coming up again so Constance the second the younger grandson and successor to Heraclius enforced an iron hand of what we could call who cares <laughs> so Constance the second didn't really have any kind of alliance to any kind of teaching all he cared about was unity so Heraclius wanted unity by promoting a particular compromise doctrine Constance II was all politics and he simply demanded unity regardless of what anyone believed so his iron hand of who cares so Constance II issued what he called the type of Constance and it basically told both sides of this conflict you will shut up so instead of just trying to get people to accept the compromise position he basically outlawed the discussion or the stance or anything regarding any of the positions and yeah, it doesn't matter what an emperor is going to teach. If, if you strongly believe something, you're going to argue about it. You're going to stand up for it. And so at this time, you had Theodore I, Bishop of Rome, who was even stronger against monothelitism than his predecessors, and he declared the monothelite Paul II of Constantinople a heretic. So Sergius was succeeded by Paul II, and you had Theodore I, who was now Bishop of Rome, openly declaring that the Bishop of Constantinople was a heretic for promoting anything outside the Orthodox teaching. And then in 649, Theodore then had a successor named Martin I, Bishop of Rome, and Martin I convened a Lateran council that condemned the ecstasis and the type of Constance. So it condemned monothelitism and it condemned the declaration of the new emperor both as heresies. And Martin wrote a letter to Emperor Constance basically saying, you will repent. <laughs> so Constance basically replied to Martin I saying basically, hey, I'm the emperor. You will shut up. <laughs> so Constance ordered Martin to be imprisoned, tortured, and banished for disobedience. And as a result of the imprisonment and torture and being banished from proper medical care, Bishop Martin I eventually died from his wounds. And there are other people who are going to suffer similar fate. So here you have the first person in record in my notes here actually being physically punished and ultimately dying from this punishment as a result of holding the position that Jesus had two wills. And now we move on to a saint of the church, Maximus, and he's called Maximus the Confessor because he was someone who he wasn't the martyr. I mean, although ultimately he did die, but a confessor is someone who's persecuted for their position, but not directly killed for it. So that's what a confessor is. So Maximus the confessor was a philosopher, and he he was taught the orthodox position, and he studied monothelitism, and he recognized the problems with it, and how, in a sense, it was a repeat of history before. So Maximus was someone who actually checked 
challenged people to debate the issue in public. So he debated and opposed monothelitism. And in his education, he read the works of Gregory of Nazianzus against Apollinarianism. So remember the Iron Man idea, and Maximus realized that there was a similarity between monothelitism and Apollinarianism. So, as Apollinarianism taught that Jesus, his noose, as it was called, basically kind of like a spirit, his inner being, spirit, and that included the will, was replaced by the divine spirit of the Son, then in a sense, monothelitism was Apollinarianism light. (laughs) It was kind of like a stripped-down, refined version of Apollinarianism. And so, as he read the arguments of Gregory of Nazianzus against Apollinarianism, he realized that these same arguments could essentially be used against monothelitism. So, wait a minute, why have we recognized that Apollinarianism is a heresy for these reasons, but monothelitism is not? It's similar. (laughs) So, Maximus actually got the patriarch Pyrrhus to debate him on monothelitism. Remember, Pyrrhus was now the bishop of Jerusalem and the successor to the orthodox Sophronius, but Pyrrhus was a monothelite. And so Maximus debated the patriarch Pyrrhus on on monothelitism, and as a result of their debates, Pyrrhus uh, converted to the Chalcedonian Orthodox position. And then he went with Maximus to Rome, kind of to accompany him there with his opposition. And he stayed there for quite a few years ministering the truth of orthodoxy. But while in Rome, Maximus was arrested with uh, Martin I. Remember, I mentioned Martin I, Constance II, imprisoned, tortured, and banished Martin I. So, along with Martin, Maximus had his tongue cut off and his right hand cut off, and he was exiled, and he ultimately died about a year later from these wounds. So, as his (laughs) tongue is cut off, his right hand's cut off, and you didn't have surgery like you have at this time it was it was just (laughs) gruesome he kind of unable to speak from his mouth and the idea of cutting off the right hand was to prevent him from being able to write anything so he's exiled and then he suffers and dies from these wounds but the direct punishment was having the tongue cut and the hand cut so he's considered a confessor not a martyr so that's maximus the confessor Now, what about the resolution of this issue? Wasn't there a council like you had Chalcedon before? Yes, there was a council. So, I didn't mention the council of Constantinople II, which was about 100 years before this, but it's not as significant. So, the council of Constantinople III dealt with the issue of monothelitism. And now, Emperor Constance II died in 668 and was succeeded by his son, Constantine IV. You gotta love all these emperors, you know, hailing the great name of Constantine here. (laughs) Vitalian I, who was then Bishop of Rome after Martin I, continued to oppose monothelitism. So, unlike the compromising Honorius I, all of his successors were devout Orthodox and against monothelitism. 
So Theodore I of Constantinople and Marcarius I of Antioch tried to get Constantine to punish the Bishop of Rome here, Vitalian I. But Constantine instead tried something that, you know, seemed to have a record of solving disputes better. Instead of writing an edict or stuff like that, instead of the exthesis or the type of Constance, Constantine here decided to hold an ecumenical council. So now you have the successor to Vitalian I at this time. Agatho, now the Bishop of Rome, succeeded Vitalian and sent delegates from Rome to the Council of Constantinople III. So, just like at Chalcedon, where Leo (laughs) sent delegates to the council, it seems like at this time it was a practice instead of the emperor. And, of course, you know, Martin I, he was kidnapped and imprisoned and whipped and killed. I think the emperor of Rome realized that he should send representatives or legates or delegates. So, Agatho of Rome sent some delegates to represent him to the council of Constantinople III. And during this council, Marcarius tried to defend monothelitism, but ultimately he was deposed from his position as bishop. But yet the council made no mention of Maximus the Confessor because Maximus was quite an orator and he also had a very nuanced and in-depth philosophy. And so there was still kind of a stigma and a question at this time as to whether Maximus the Confessor was actually fully orthodox, but, you know, he was vindicator later on. They were still suspicious of his position. But, you know, here's a very interesting uh, event that happened. So, during one of the sessions of the Council of Constantinople III, a monothelite priest by the name of Polychronius, <laughs> you know, it sounds like that's a name given to him, like he's, you know, he has lots of problems or something. So, a monothelite priest named Polychronius claimed that he could prove the doctrine's truth by raising a dead man. So it seemed like as things were being vetted at the council, the orthodox position seemed to be gaining ground and not to be undone here. A monothelite priest, Polychronius, was claiming a supernatural proof that monothelitism was actually the truth. And he claimed, I can (laughs) raise a dead man to life by the truth of monothelitism. Uh, (laughs) so they brought a corpse to him to see if he could raise him from the dead and polychronius first whispered um, a monothelite creed into the corpse's ear and you know attempted for several hours to raise this man from the dead uh, to no avail (laughs) You know, somehow in my mind, I just picture Polychronius being this like horse old man, you know, looking like a shaman, you know, because of talking about raising the dead. I just picture him like, I can raise this man from the dead by the power of monothelitism. Cough, cough. <laughs> you know, that's just what I picture in my mind, but I know that's not the, what, it, what it looked like. But it, it had to be a spectacle as people waited with bated breath as Polychronius tried something, nothing happened, and then he's kind of like, wait, wait, I just need to do this, you know, try something else. And then eventually people are tapping their fingers, getting impatient, until finally they say, okay, you've had your chance, we're done. And then... 
in two sessions of the council and in the final statement from the council, the late Honorius I, who was Bishop of Rome and he was dead at this time, he was declared a heretic. So the Council of Constantinople III ultimately ruled that monothelitism was a heresy and it explained that diothelitism or the two-will position was the orthodox position. And Maximus the Confessor was ultimately vindicated by Constantinople III after his death. So, here are some considerations for the Council of Constantinople, the issue of monothelitism, and all the political strife that happened at this point in history. So, let's ask ourselves some questions for consideration. Do we value doctrinal truth over compromise for political reasons? Would we actually take a position, for whatever reason, political, emotional, to maintain friends, whatever? Do we value truth for truth's sake over compromise? First, theologically, just how important is the integrity of substitutionary atonement to us? Because I guess it will have a part three, which will talk about substitutionary atonement, light of monothelitism. I also want to talk about the issue of Honorius I in more detail and papal infallibility that was raised as a result of this controversy and how Catholic (laughs) apologists will try to downplay how history regards Honorius I as a heretic because how can you have a bishop of Rome who's ultimately regarded as a heretic and the way bishops vowed later on that they would not... God forbid that I be an honorius. <laughs> also, ecclesiastically, do we let pragmatism determine church programs or do we let truth determine how they are issued? And also, politically, do we let political philosophies compromise how we vote? Just let's take this issue into the voting booth. Do we vote from a strong conviction about truth, or do we just vote out of compromise? Issues like monothelitism in history could even make us consider that. Well, (laughs) I hope that wasn't too much of an information overload. I hope that it made sense, and I hope that the discussion about monothelitism made sense, and that from all of this we recognize and we should honor those who are willing to stand for the truth in the face of physical discomfort and punishment. Where would we be without a Maximus the Confessor or a Martin the First being willing to face incredible pain over the truth that Jesus had two wills. So we look at the fact that people were imprisoned, whipped, had parts of their body removed, and they bled to death ultimately, and they're willing to endure this over something that was seemingly trivial as whether Jesus has one will or two will. But the Orthodox recognized that this question, just like all of the questions answered before, was ultimately the question of Could this Jesus save me? Could the Jesus of monothelitism actually be my substitute? And if he can't, he's not my savior, and that's not truth. That's not what the scriptures teach. And I did present some scriptures in the last episode. 
And so I hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for (laughs) part three of this question. Is Jesus like Dr. Octopus? Where we address specifically the substitutionary aspect of this and get into the ramifications of Honorius I and uh, his part in history and how that affects the doctrine of papal infallibility in the Roman Catholic Church. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 